So last week, uh, we looked at the, Paul's initial ministry uh, among the Thessalonians, or Paul and company, I guess I sh- should say. And please understand, if I say Paul, I'm recognizing that uh, there were others with Paul. The Paul and company's uh, initial ministry among the Thessalonians, and we kind of used a word that I, that I chose to characterize Paul and company's ministry among the Thessalonians, and that word was substantive. Paul says it was not, our ministry among you was not in vain. It wasn't empty, but we also acknowledge that it was not as full as it could have been, but it was substantive. There was substance to it, and, and so we said that Paul's ministry was uh, substantive among the Thessalonians. And uh, we also saw that these kind of give to us some characteristics of substantive ministry to encourage us as we minister and do the things that God has called us to do in the spheres that God has called us to minister, what a substantive ministry might look like for us. And, and I pray, my prayer is that you were encouraged in that and instructed in that. Today, we're looking then at the Thessalonians' response to Paul's substantive ministry Paul and Company's substantive ministry um, in Thessalonica. And I think that we can also say that there is, just as there was substance in Paul's ministry to the Thessalonians, there's also substance in the Thessalonian response. Their response meant something, and that's important, isn't it? It's not just important that they, that they heard the gospel boldly declared to them, and that they received the love that the Apostle Paul and his uh, fellow ministers demonstrated to the Thessalonians, it was also important that they responded appropriately, right? It, It matters how we respond, because the fact is that there are a multitude of people, sad to say, this breaks my heart, but there are a multitude of people who will have sat in gospel centered churches and they will have heard the word of God. And they will have had the love of God demonstrated to them by the saints of God. And they will stand before the Lord and hear the awful judgment passed on them. I never knew you. Right? So so we have to respond as well. And so the Thessalonian response, it meant something. It produced something. There was substance to their response. The Thessalonians responded by receiving the gospel message that Paul and company boldly declared to them as the word of God. Paul says, as it really is. And then it produced fruit in the lives of the people. And we're going to see today, of course, we know that it produced fruit. Paul labored for them to live upright, to be imitators. Paul will say in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, you became imitators of us. You were imitators of the Lord Jesus. Paul is going to say that you were imitators of the churches. So uh, Paul works with them to teach them that they are to live upright lives. So it produced fruit in the lives of the people. But in today's text, Paul says that because of the response, because the Thessalonians received the word of God as the word of God, this made them a part of the church, Paul says. And it brought them under his care, which really is just another identifying factor of them being a part 
of the Gentile church coming under Paul's apostolic care. So verse 13 then says that they received the word of God and then not as the word of man, not as the words of men. Paul says that the Thessalonians responded appropriately to their message because they did not regard the message that Paul and company boldly declared to them as merely the words of men. Remember uh, last week, 1 Thessalonians 2 Three, uh, 3 through 5. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so God approved them to entrust him really with his word, we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts, for we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext of greed or for greed. God is witness. He says, Paul says we didn't need to speak flattering words because our message was true. Our motives were pure. You remember that from last week. And then the Thessalonians responded rightly to the message Paul and company preached to them because they did not regard them as words of God. Rather, Paul says, or words of men. Rather, Paul says, you received the word that we preached as what it really is. The word of God. It was the gospel that God has entrusted us with. Paul said that you received the word not as, not as if we were speaking, but as if God was speaking. Because in fact, that's what was happening. God was speaking. You received the word from us, not as from us, but as from God, which is exactly what it, what it was. So, what what is the what is the answer then how did they know how did they believe that this was the very word of god how could they possibly know such a thing does that question arise in your mind how could religious jews who rejected jesus and the pagan greeks who worshiped a multitude of other gods believe that paul and company was they actually were preaching the very words of Jehovah. How, how is that possible? Here are religious Jews that rejected Jesus, but now they're saying, oh, you know what? No, this gospel about Jesus, no, this, this, is, this is from God. Or the Thessalonians that worshipped a multitude of other gods were saying, no, you know what? This, this God, this Jehovah God is speaking to us the truth about Jesus. What? What caused that? What happened here? Well, 1 Thessalonians 1.5 tells us, doesn't it? Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. The message was not just a message, folks. It was accompanied by the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. That's what caused the unbelieving Jews to believe. That's what caused the pagan Thessalonians to suddenly believe that Paul and company were preaching the very words of God. Do you see that? It was accompanied. And I, and I need you to see that because that's how it works. We don't just hear a reasonable argument or a logical explanation. Listen, that a self-proclaimed Jewish Messiah 
died for sinners. Listen to how radical this message is to the unbeliever. You cannot convince them with an argument that a a self-proclaimed Jewish Messiah died for sinners publicly. People saw him die and then rose from the grave and then ascended into the heavens somewhere. If that's all that we had, hardly anyone would believe such a fantastical tale. We might could gather together some radical cult that believes this fairy tale about a person who came and died and that their death actually impacted other people. And then that he rose again on the third day and is actually, well, the reason why he's not here and living is because, well, he's in heaven somewhere. Right? How... How, if that's all that we had, I mean, hardly anyone would believe. Folks, the power behind the gospel, first of all, is that it's really true. Paul expresses that. And indeed, I would say that it is ultimate truth. And then it is accompanied by the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. This is what makes the difference. It's what makes it made the difference in the Thessalonians' lives. That's what made the difference in everywhere the gospel was proclaimed by Paul and the other apostles. And it's what makes the difference in our life. The Holy Spirit, the quickening power, the resurrection power of God makes alive the dead hearts of men that God has determined to save and convinces them of the truth that Jesus is the Messiah that he died for sinners, and he absolutely rose from the grave on the Sunday after his public crucifixion, and that he certainly ascended to the right hand of God, where he currently reigns over his people and will return to reign all over the earth. I got chill bumps thinking about it, because I believe it just like I saw it happen. And the reason why is because the power that worked in that in Christ to make that happen now abides in me and unites me with Christ, the Holy Spirit. He has made me alive to the truth of the Word of God. Paul didn't convince the Thessalonians of this truth with his dynamic preaching or superior logic. He will argue that over and over and over again. I did not come with enticing words of man's wisdom. I chose to know nothing among you save Christ and him crucified. He didn't, he didn't convince them. It was the Holy Spirit working through the preaching of the gospel. Paul says in 1, 4, and 5, we know God had chosen you because of this, because the Spirit made the words of God alive in your heart and you recognize them as the word of God. And so it is with us. We, we believe not because we are smarter than anyone else or not because our preacher is smarter than anyone else, but because God determined to save us and the Holy Spirit convinced us of the truth of the gospel message. And I pray that if an unbeliever hears my voice today, that the Holy Spirit will convince you of that truth. The truth of the gospel. And that you will repent of your sins and believe the gospel to the salvation of your soul. Because, beloved, if you are hearing me today, first of all, it's not an accident that you're hearing the gospel today. You're here for a reason, to hear the gospel, whether it's in this building or you're hearing me by Facebook Live. You are hearing the gospel because God has determined for you to hear the gospel. 
And I will say that if you will come to Jesus, repenting of your sins, confessing he is Lord, he will in no wise cast you out. He will receive you and he will save you. They were convinced that the word of God, they were convinced by the Holy Spirit that the word of God that Paul was preaching was that, just that. It was the word of God. But then Paul says that it was at work in them. And this is, this is the beautiful thing about the work of the Holy Spirit. This is not just an initial work of the Holy Spirit to convince them that the gospel was true and then leave them to figure out what to do after that. Rather, the word of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is still at work in the Thessalonian believers. Isn't that right? This is, this is the effectual and living ministry of the word of God. Hebrew, the Hebrew writer says this, and this is a, a famous passage you will recognize in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intents of the heart. I about said marrow, my Baker County raisin about to come out in me. <laughs> but, but this is the living and effectual ministry of the Word of God. It is at work in them by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul says the Thessalonians received the Word of God as the word of God, and it convinced them of the truth of the gospel, and it is presently at work in them, making them imitators of Paul and the Lord, verses 1 through 6, and the other churches, especially in Judea, verse 2, 14. I think that we could all agree this is a substantive response. This is a response that meant something. It was, a, it was a response that was accompanied, or should we say, filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. And then the Holy Spirit caused the Thessalonians to believe and continued to work in their lives through the Word of God. Again, this is how it works, beloved. And so my question to you is, how, how about you? Can you say you are convinced that the Word of God is true? And not just convinced in a theological or doctrinal way, but so convinced, in fact, that you believe and the Word of God is verifying that you believe by working in your life, making you more like Jesus. That's how the Word of God works. And I think it's wise for us from time to time to take assessment of our lives and ask as we... In such a way, like when we read 1 Thessalonians and we see the work of God is at work in the Thessalonian believers, making them more like Jesus, that we ask ourselves, is the word of God at work in my life making me more like Jesus? Is the word of God active and living? Is it effectual in my heart? Is it at work in me? So they received, the response of the Thessalonians was that they received the word of God as the word of God and it was doing a work in their lives. But then Paul also says in 14 through 16 that their response to the word of God made them a part of the church. They became a part of the church. That word imitators, 
is important here. He says the work of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God in the lives of the Thessalonians, Thessalonians made them imitators of the church of God in Christ Jesus, especially in Judea. And this, this is significant here because Paul is telling a Gentile, a predominantly Gentile congregation, you're just like the church in Judea. You've become imitators of them. And that would have borne great significance in that time. As I said a moment ago, the work of the word and the life of the Thessalonians made them imitators of Paul and company and imitators of the Lord. Now, Paul says, they are imitators of the church. When you get home, I want you to do something. Break out your concordances and look up the word disciple. You're going to discover something interesting when you look up the word disciple in your concordance, if you have one like me anyway. And that is, it does not appear in the epistles. That word disciple does not appear in the epistles. But this word imitator, imitators of Paul, could we say disciple of Paul? Imitator of the Lord. Could we say follower of the Lord? Disciple of the Lord? Imitator of the churches. Could we say a disciple of the church? A follower of the church? This word imitator is closely related to the idea of a disciple that's communicated elsewhere in the New Testament. And you can see that in 1 Corinthians 4.16, 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Ephesians 5.1, 1, 1 Thessalonians 1.6, Hebrews 6.12, Philippians 3.17, to name several places there. The Thessalonians, by their response to the gospel, became imitators or disciples of Paul, the Lord, and the churches. They became followers of Jesus, followers of the apostles, and followers of the church. As a matter of fact, that word imitator is the one that, the Greek word is the one that Paul uses when he says, follow me as I follow Christ. He is being, this person, this believer is being discipled by Paul, being discipled by Christ. So that word imitator is closely associated And that's what happened with the Thessalonians. They became imitators of the church, followers of the church. What Paul is communicating is that when you receive the gospel as the word of God and you believed it and the spirit of God is at work in your life, you became a part of the church. The church. We also need, and we can't skip this, we also need to note the primary identifying factor of being a part of the church in this passage is what? Suffering. And I think that speaks even to the substantive ministry that Paul has as it relates to our application last week even. Because sometimes we think of substantive ministry in the terms of this kind of Western pragmatic idea. We we think of how much... How many? Is it successful? Was there a program build? Or does it, is, it, is it able to be applauded by men? But here are the Thessalonians that had a substantive ministry given to them and had a substantive response to them. And what do they get? They don't get a, a well-known discipleship program, do they? 
They get suffering. The same way those who believed in Judea were persecuted by their fellow countrymen, Paul said, the Jews in Judea, so the Thessalonians were persecuted by their fellow countrymen who was, they were both Jews and Greeks. So they were getting it from both sides. The Thessalonians became disciples of the Word of God in life and in suffering. Doesn't the Word of God tell us that all who live godly in Christ will suffer persecution? And then immediately after this, we have the understanding that we are not to fear because Christ has overcome the world. But we are identified, or the Thessalonians, I should say, were identified by suffering, identified with the rest of the church by suffering. And why? Because they received the Word of God, and I think this is crucial, as the Word of God. And I don't, I don't want to scare anybody off here, but this is becoming, if, if you have monitored the culture at all, in, in our time, this is becoming an increasing reality for us. For those of us that stand on the Word of God and say radical things like, in the beginning, God created them male and female. And we believe that because that's what the Word of God says. And, well, we don't believe it because we were there. I wasn't there. I don't think we've got any folks that are that old. Right, Bob says he's almost that old. <laughs> but we weren't there, so why do, we, why do we believe that that's true? It's because we believe the Word of God as the Word of God. It's the Word of God. That's the way it is. It's absolutely true. It's becoming increasing an increasing reality for us to be identified with the sufferings of the ancient church and really the church throughout history by simply believing the Word of God as the Word of God, and we need to be aware of that, church, because the suffering does not change the Word of God. It is still the Word of God, and we must still believe it as the Word of God, regardless of the rise and fall of our circumstances. Paul does something interesting also in verse 14 and 16 when he talks about the Thessalonians, when he's aimed at, maybe I should say, that the Thessalonians received the Word of God as the Word of God and became a part of the church, he contrasts them with a general term, the Jews. And of course, this is not talking about all Jews. Paul's a Jew and he's a believer. There were a multitude of Jewish believers in that day, evidenced by the fact that there was a church in Judea. But he's talking about this group of people, John does the same thing, identified those that oppose the true gospel of Jesus Christ as the, the Jews. So he contrasts the Thessalonians' joyous reception of the word of God with the Jews' rejection of the word of God. Do you see that? Paul says that the, that the Jews rejected and killed the prophets who preached the word. They rejected and crucified Jesus, who is the living word. And they persecuted and drove out Paul and company for boldly declaring the word, the good news about Jesus from the law and prophets, incidentally. 
And in so doing, Paul says, they bring upon themselves God's displeasure. And this would have been an immediate indictment against them because they thought, as Paul thought when he was persecuting Christians, that they were actually pleasing God by trying to stamp out this movement around Jesus. And they did it by any means necessary. Persecution, imprisonment, even death. Paul says they oppose all mankind in so doing by hindering the saving word. They were not helping people by silencing the message. Rather, they were imposing them by trying to stop the very thing that could save their souls from destruction, which I think as a side note says something of Paul's confidence in the power of God as salvation. Paul is saying them opposing the word that we are preaching is actually opposing the salvation of their own souls. Paul says in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of what? The gospel. For it, the gospel, not our dynamo, not our cleverness, not our reasonable arguments. The gospel is the power of God to salvation to them that believe. Paul had great confidence in this and he says they are opposing, the Jews are opposing all mankind by stopping or trying to stop the very thing that could save their souls. And it even goes further. Paul says that by rejecting the word of God and displeasing God and opposing all mankind, interesting phrase alert again, the Jews have filled up the measure of of their sins. This is actually an Old Testament way of signifying the wrath of God is against a certain people. You remember the Amorites, uh, they, they were in Canaan, but God says that the people of God needed to go to Egypt before they could, con- before they could overcome Canaan because the sins of the Amorites had not yet full, filled up its measure. But we know that at the conquest of Canaan, obviously, that the measure of the Amorite sins had been filled up, and so the wrath of God was poured out upon them, really, by the hands of Joshua and God's people. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a way. There's another reference to it in, in Isaiah chapter 8, I believe. There's, there's a, this is a way, an Old Testament way, of signifying that God's wrath is against a certain people, which is, again, astonishing. This is, this is an astonishing thing to say for the Apostle Paul. The Jews, by killing the prophets and Jesus and rejecting the gospel, had filled up their measure of sins. And Paul says, because of that, wrath has, become, has come upon them. And the sentence structure in this shocking statement indicates, I, I think, you know, Immediately we ask, what do you mean the wrath of God has come upon them? Has the wrath of God already come upon them? Well, the way that this sentence is structured in Greek indicates, I believe, at least two things. First, that judgment is pronounced on the Jews who, just like the pagan nations, have rejected God because of their love for sin and really their hatred for God. So it puts them in the same category as the pagan nations all the people who reject God and hate God because of their sin, under the wrath of God. So when God's wrath is poured out, 
Again, this is astonishing for Paul to say, the Jews will not be exempt because of their national identity. You are not exempt, or the Jews are not exempt, Paul is saying to the Thessalonians, from the wrath of God because they are the seed of Abraham. This does not exempt them at all. They are under the wrath of God because they reject the word of God. Second, they are under God's wrath. I think in the sense of Romans in, of Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 talks about folks who have suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. And then because they have done that, God gives them over to all sorts of wicked things. And, and so the wrath of God is revealed against mankind, the Jews included, in the fact that they have suppressed the truth of the gospel and they have been given over by God to all manner of wicked acts such as imprisoning, persecuting, and killing innocent people. They are wrath, Paul says, has come upon them. But, but note the contrast then. The Thessalonians receive the word of God while the Jews reject it. The Thessalonians become imitators of Jesus, Paul, and the church while the Jews kill the prophets in Jesus, drive out the apostles, and oppose all mankind. The Jews, along with all people who reject the gospel, are under the wrath of God. But the Thessalonians, as Paul tells them, in 1 and 10, have been delivered by the resurrected Jesus from the wrath to come. 1.10, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. The Jews are under the wrath of God, but the Thessalonians have been delivered from the wrath of God by Jesus. And I believe, I believe Paul in all of this is still in line with the idea that the Thessalonians became a part of the church by their response to the gospel. And I want to, I want to give you a very brief biblical theology as to why I believe that. The Jews are the old covenant people of God by birth, by the physical seed of Abraham, and by ritual, namely circumcision. But the new covenant people of God, which is made up of Jews and Gentiles, are those who have been given a new heart, evidenced by their belief in the gospel. And this is shown to be true in 1 Thessalonians 1, 4, and 5. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. And that, again, is language that is referencing the old covenant people of God as the chosen people of God. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. The Jews then, by and large, or in general, or as a nationally identified people who are persecuting and opposing the church, the Jews are demonstrating they have not been given a new heart, this new covenant promise. And they are demonstrating that by rejecting and opposing the gospel and Paul says this is a practice that was common among them all the way back to the prophets. This means that the Jews, the old covenant people of God, as a national people, are no, are no longer what marks off the people of God. 
And those people are actually under God's wrath because they have rejected the new covenant word, the gospel. But those who were given a new heart and believe the gospel, those folks are the spiritual seed of Abraham, Galatians chapter 6. They are the new covenant people of God, also known as the church. Paul is telling the Thessalonians they became a part of the new covenant people of God, the church, when they received the gospel message as the word of God and became imitators of Jesus, Paul, and the churches. You received the word of God as the word of God and you became a part of the church, the new covenant people of God who have been given a new heart as evidenced by a substantive response. To the word of God. And finally. These Thessalonians. In receiving the word of God. As the word of God. In becoming. A part of the church. Came under the apostolic care. Of the apostle Paul. He has already communicated. That they were very dear to him. And now he is saying. That he cares for them just as much in his absence as he did in his presence. He uses the the word torn away. Paul is saying we did not leave Thessalonica because we had to rush off to another appointment. We didn't didn't need to rush off to another missionary endeavor. We, We didn't want to leave. We wanted to stay. But because of the persecution that we were receiving, because our lives were in jeopardy, as as Dale told us about from Acts chapter 17, uh, that they were torn away. The Thessalonian believers have become a part of Paul and crew. That's the word picture, isn't it? That they were torn away, meaning that your hearts have become very dear to us. Our, Our hearts and lives were enmeshed with you. And for us to leave in the unexpected manner that we did, it was being ripped apart. We were being torn away. The, the word picture here is actually like a child being, being orphaned by the death of his parents. And he maintains that familial analogy and says that our unexpected departure from Thessalonica is kind of like a child being torn away from his parents through the tragedy of death. Paul cared deeply for the Thessalonians as demonstrated by the fact that when leaving, it was a tear in himself. Paul also says, you came under my care, you were on my heart, in our hearts. Although they were torn away in person, Paul says the Thessalonians are still in their hearts. He opens the letter to the Thessalonians by saying they are constantly mentioning them in their prayers. And then here he is saying that they are constantly thanking God for the Thessalonians. So there is a constant remembrance, constantly mentioning him in their prayers, constantly thanking God. The the Thessalonian believers, they are in the hearts of of these ministers of God, especially the Apostle Paul as the, as the Apostle. 
The fact that Paul says the Thessalonian believers are constantly in his heart, I think further solidifies that they had become a part of the church through their belief in the gospel. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28. Paul says, after he gives the list of all of the things that he suffers, in verse 28 he says, And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. So he, he mentions being whipped and stoned and shipwrecked and abandoned to the ocean and danger in the wilderness. And he says, the anxiousness that I feel in my heart for those who are under my care is similar to those things. Paul's apostolic concern for the churches, he had a hand in planning, is an identifier of the Gentile churches and the Thessalonian and the, th- the fact that the Thessalonian church had come under his care and, and would be a part of these that are mentioned in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. So they are in their hearts. They are on his heart. And then Paul demonstrates his care for them in the fact that he desires to come back to them over and over again. So we are constantly mentioning, mentioning you in our prayers, constantly giving thanks for you, and constantly trying to get back to you. Paul demonstrates his concern for the Thessalonians and that they desired it to, and even eagerly endeavored to come back. But he says Satan hindered us. Not because we didn't try, it's because Satan has hindered us. Acts chapter 17 through 19 record that nearly everywhere Paul and company went, there was opposition. In Acts chapter 20, he's finally able to return to Macedonia, which is where Thessalonica is located. Looks like he picks up some folks from Thessalonica. But Paul's reference to Satan's hindrance is probably the fact that he would have liked to have returned to Thessalonica sooner. But because he was facing so much opposition, he could not desire to get back to them. But he says, it still does not erase my desire for you. You're under my care. I'm thinking of you. I'm praying for you. You're on my heart. It was like being torn away to be taken from you. But then he says, you are my glory, my joy, and my crown at Jesus' coming. This is, something, this is something beautiful that Paul says, not just to the Thessalonians. But the Thessalonians are people who believed God's word. They endured persecution. And they lived upright lives in spite of the infliction that they were receiving. And Paul says, these are the kind of people that are my glory, joy, and crown. Paul will stand before the Lord and joyfully present as the fruit of his labor those who believe the gospel he declared. Joyfully do so. Here are jewels, Lord. As Jesus said, he would not be ashamed of those who are not ashamed of him before the Father. So Paul says he will not be ashamed. He will boast in those who have believed the word of God and become imitators of the Lord, Paul, and the churches. As a matter of fact, this is a common way again that Paul refers to those churches under his apostolic care. 2 Corinthians 1.14 
Paul says, just as you did, speaking to the Corinthians, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, we will, you will boast of us, and we will boast of you. Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown... Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. This is a common way that Paul refers to those that believe the gospel that he preaches. There is joy, there is crown, there is glory at the coming of Jesus. But there's something interesting here that connects them to the church of the ages. Listen to Isaiah 62 verses 1 through 3. For Zion's sake I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake I will not be quiet. Until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord. And a royal diadem in the hand of the Lord. Of your God. So God, by the mouth of Isaiah, calls Zion a crown and a diadem, revealing that from ages past, this is so key, that from ages past, God's intention is to redeem a people for Himself that will be a crown and a glory for Him. And Paul tells the Thessalonians that you are a part of that people. Just like the people in Judea. Just like the Corinthians, just like the Philippians, all of those, just like the Lake Cityans that gather at church on the way on Sundays, all of those who believe, all of those who are the people of Zion, we have believed the gospel and we have become a part of God's intention, which is the church. That's why I refer to you often as beloved, dear ones, saints of the Most High. I know sometimes it may sound goofy. That's why I refer to you this morning as the people of Zion. Because those that have believed the gospel, that is precisely what you are. You are the elect lady. You are the beloved of God. You are the people of Zion. You are the church of the living God. The pillar and ground of truth. Saints of the Most High. And the list can go on and on and on about how God feels because from time... Time and ages past, God intended to save a people for himself. Beloved, the Thessalonians and you and I are part of that people. And we did it how? Because we're so great and good? No, because the Holy Ghost worked in us that caused us to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. Not on my works. But on Christ. That's us, folks. The Thessalonians believe the gospel. And they are the people of God. And we are the people of God. Because we have believed the gospel. I think that we can learn from the Thessalonians as I'm given a couple of points, couldn't give all the application, just a couple of points of application. As I close, the Thessalonians, I think, are a model to us. A model in receiving the Word of God. 
as the Word of God. Think of the noble Bereans who received the Word of God as the Word of God, and then they went back and searched the Scriptures. Can I say that I would highly encourage you to do that? Don't just take everything I say for absolute truth. I'm a human being just like you are. I could get things mixed up. But still receive the Word of God and learn from the Word of God. Paul says that the Thessalonians were imitators of Jesus, Paul, and the churches, even in suffering. And so I think that we can learn from the Thessalonians as a model of receiving the Word of God to be imitators of Jesus, to become more like Jesus. Even in difficult circumstances like suffering, persecution, waiting, and just the humdrum, run-of-the-mill grind of daily life. Do you believe the Word of God as the Word of God? Are you willing to suffer for God's truth? Are you willing to become more and more like Jesus, like the Thessalonians? I also think that just as sure as the Thessalonians are a model that we can use to apply to our lives, I think that Paul is also a model of love and care for the church. We saw that last week and we see it again this week. And so I want to ask you, do you love the church? I love the church, I say. I love the church. Okay, that's great. But love is an action, not a feeling. Right? So how do you express love for the church? You do it by acting on behalf of the church. You do it by loving and serving or serving the church. One of the, one of the primary ways or one of the uh, great ways, perhaps I should say, of loving and serving one another is when we come together and we minister to one another. And sing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in our hearts to the Lord. Right? That, that's one of the ways that we minister to one another. And there are a multitude of practical ways being engaged in one another's life, correcting one another, instructing one another, helping one another. All of these ways are ways that we express love for the church. But, but I, want to, I want to tap down a little further and say, what church? The universal church in general? Do I just go up to someone on the street and say, Hey, I think that you might be a part of the universal church. I would like to love and serve you. That's possible. But the best and most practical way to demonstrate it is in this local expression of the universal church. Now, see, God has made it easy for us. We don't have to just go around and be like, okay, who am I supposed to serve? What am I supposed to do? And I, no, we have, a, we have a local congregation of people who gather from day to day, people whose lives that we are constantly, constantly bumping up against, people's lives who we're enmeshed with and who we attend small group with, who we work with, who we see in town and so forth, do we do, do business with. We have people that are, we are constantly bumping up and we know that they are believing the same gospel that we believe. They have 
identify themselves through baptism. They identify themselves through uh, partaking of the Lord's Supper. They identify themselves through covenanting with the church together in, mem- in meaningful membership. And so we know these are the people that, that I am called to love and serve through action. So we demonstrate the Apostle Paul's love for the church. Pa- Paul didn't just say, I love the church in general. He says, I love you, Thessalonians. I love you, Corinthians. I love you, Philippians. And here's the ways that I have demonstrated that love to these local congregations. And so it is with us, folks. The local congregation is a concrete expression of the universal church. And if we say that we love the church, then we ought to love and serve one another. Amen.